it is the covenant of works that I have uh, planned to preach, uh, but it is not Adam's covenant of works. It is Christ's covenant of works that I've come to preach. And so uh, hopefully by the time I've completed uh, my sermon this morning, you're going to see the wondrous uh, doctrine of what's called the covenant of redemption and how that is associated with uh, the covenant of works in the garden. Um, and so this morning, as we consider uh, this idea of the covenant of redemption, I want us to think about it and put it in context. And sometimes it becomes a misunderstanding in God's word as we work our way from Genesis to Revelation. And we come to that that falter that Adam and Eve uh, performed in the garden there in Genesis 3. And we wonder if if everything after Genesis 3 is plan B. Plan A was to create man and woman to live in, in blessedness in the garden, and plan B is then to save man from sin and destruction. Well, uh, we may consider it that way because when we do things, there's always usually a plan A and a plan B for when things go wrong. Uh, many of you may know this already, or maybe you don't, but I, my day job, so to speak, is a firefighter. And I and I uh, work here in Kern County, and you know, good firefighting tax, tactics are not just to have a plan A and a plan B, but a plan C. There's always a development in the plan as things dynamically change, and we react to to the different uh, aspects of a fire. We are to have three plans to put into place, and this comes very much into play also at home, and maybe maybe this is more relatable to you, is you're doing projects or you're doing something at home and you set out with plan A to take care of it, as I often do. I take my first trip to Lowe's, our Home Depot, and I'm committed to grab everything I need the first time I go. Plan A. Plan B usually involves me going back, getting other parts that I didn't know I needed or things that I broke along the way, uh, it, it just happens in the life of us as as human beings that we are to have plan A and plan B. And it's the reason why we do have a plan A and plan B, I hope, is because we recognize that uh, we cannot with 100% assuredness or surety say things will go according to plan. And this is why Scripture portrays such claims as arrogant and foolish, such as James chapter 4 beginning in 13, says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what will bring, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We recognize is the human condition is that we cannot possibly have one plan. We are always being affected by the world around us. Even our thoughts are not of a complete originality. They're born out of our experience and our environment. And, and our evil thoughts are born out of our broken nature we have in Adam. But it is not so with God. Scripture reminds us over and over again that all things 
are working according to God's purposes. We call this God's decree. It's that unknown uh, decree that was made in eternity past about all things, ordaining all things that would come to pass in history. Well, in connection with this decree, God has foreordained our salvation. And when we speak about God foreordaining our salvation, one of the ways that it's been formulated throughout church history, as the Spirit, I believe, has revealed it to godly men in the past, as they formulated this doctrine, or formulated this doctrine known as the covenant of redemption. The scriptural conclusion that God is not offering to us a plan B for our salvation. That from the moment you turn your page in Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth to the final amen in Revelation. It is plan A. It is, it is the plan of God to redeem a people for His own glory. To redeem, uh, and specifically for the Father, to uh, through the Son to redeem a people as a bride to the bridegroom. And so as we look at this doctrine this morning, I hope that we are encouraged at this glorious truth that we have of being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There will be many scripture passages that we're going to be turning to this morning, so hopefully your fingers are warmed up. But as a way of foundation, we're going to turn to one this morning and read it together and it's second Timothy one verses eight through fourteen. And the reason why we want to I, I chose this out of the many passages that express uh this doctrine is Paul is how Paul connects this doctrine to our present suffering. We don't often think about uh God's uh eternal covenant or God the covenant of redemption and our present suffering. Uh, but as we would follow the uh, pattern of the Spirit through the hand of Paul, we should consider these things. And it's Second Second Timothy, chapter one, verses uh, eight through fourteen. And I'll follow your guys' tradition if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 8, this is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By that you have heard, excuse me, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, 
guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you that we have your word, that you have preserved it for us down through the ages, that we come to it as our only infallible authority in life and our only hope in death as it, pre- as it reveals to us our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, give us your spirit now attending to the preaching of your word. And we may be blessed to not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray these things in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, it is my intention this morning that you would take much encouragement in the doctrine of the covenant of of redemption. That what was determined in eternity cannot be undermined in time. And there's much that we can draw out of Paul's second letter to Timothy here, and especially in the large passage that I presented before you. But we see there in the middle of our passage that is in the midst of him speaking about his own suffering and in the midst of him saying that they that God had saved them and called them to a holy calling, that it wasn't because of their works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's the end, that's the end of verse 9. That We see here couched in this encouragement from Paul to uh, the saints in Ephesians or to Timothy and then Timothy to the saints in Ephesians and then to us. We see this encouragement that though we suffer now, that we see that, that there are many things external to ourselves in our life, in our environment, in our culture, that seeks to undermine what God has called us to. That seeks to prey upon the weakness of our flesh. Even times the weakness of our own spirit, where we even question whether or not we would we are truly following after Christ. But but Paul then takes them directly back, not just to uh, the cross, as it were happening in time, but but what was behind the cross, the purposes of God, His own purpose and His grace. And it's what He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Well, we see that as we look at that, what was determined in eternity cannot be undermined in time. We see that that's the foundation of Romans 5.8, which says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is an unchangeable covenant between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And as we, hopefully, as I make this connection, not only to the covenant of works, but also, namely, the covenant of grace, we're going to be encouraged this morning, dear Christians, that Though you are terrible, terrible sinners, you serve a greater Savior who died for you while you were still yet sinners. That we wouldn't be weary of taking upon the law what began in the Spirit. And that we would then turn to Christ in humble gratitude and serve Him with gladness, knowing that we cannot undermine in time what He had determined in eternity. Well, in relationship to the covenant of works in the garden, I want to give you guys a reminder. 
a reminder of what that was because we're going to see the covenant of works with Adam and the covenant of redemption with Christ or the covenant of works with Christ. Uh, Herman Wistius says this, the covenant of works is a divinely sanctioned agreement between God and Adam by which God promised eternal life and happiness if Adam yielded obedience, threatening him with death if he failed, but in the least point. And Adam accepted this condition. So you guys know, you guys spent, was it two years in the covenant of works? Oh, two years just in Genesis. I know, I know Pastor Antonio, and he probably wanted to do two years in the covenant of works. So be thankful that it was only nine or 10 weeks. No, the covenant of works, you guys know, with, with Adam in the garden was where God, uh, as, as our confession says, graciously condescended offering him a better state on his obedience, yet threatening him to die, very die or to death if he were to break that covenant. And we know our Bibles well enough to know that Adam did not keep his covenant. And it was not uh, of surprise to the Lord. Because when the Lord comes to Adam in the garden, he says, where are you? He's not asking Adam where he is physically. He's addressing what truth, what, what uh, Adam learned in his sin. Where are you now, Adam? Spiritually, you are far from me. And so we see that as, as we see in Genesis 3.15, this unfolding, this first promise given to Adam and Eve in the garden as he curses the serpent that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. We know from Scripture that that is not the first uh, idea or the first mind of God on this. It, it happens in eternity past. And this doctrine is called the covenant of redemption. If you were to read some of the old writers that I'm sure Pastor Isaiah spends a lot of time reading, it come, this covenant of redemption comes in another name. It's called the Pactum Salutis. It's a, that's a, a, a Latin word for the covenant of redemption. But what's helpful in those Latin terms is as they get lined up next to each other, they, they begin to unfold the redemption plan of God, the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. We see that what happened and what was planned in eternity then is played out in time and history. Well, we want to address some things about the covenant of redemption before we start talking about its connection to our suffering or to our daily life. We want to see what is the covenant of redemption. We want to see where is the covenant of redemption. And we want to know why we are to know anything about this covenant of redemption. Well, what is the covenant of redemption? Uh, Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology describes the covenant of redemption as the agreement between the father giving the son as head and redeemer of the elect and the son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the father had given him. Well, what we understand here is, is we look at uh, Louis Burkhoff's definition as we see an interaction, we see action between the Father and the Son. We see internal action between the persons of the Trinity. 
outside of time. We have the person of the Father and we have the person of the Son interacting and the Spirit alongside them agreeing to then proceed from the both of them to uh, to provide the power necessary for uh for Christ to come and be the redeemer of the elect and then and then in connected to the covenant of redemption for the elect then to respond to their redeemer. Well, as we think about the internal actions of God, we must understand and we must pause for a moment of uh, reverence and solemnity. We're talking about things unknown to us uncapable of us to fully comprehend and grasp because we're talking about the interactions between the persons of the Trinity, yet we don't divide their will. The essence, uh, their, their, the will of God is one will. That there we would not put then in, in improper conclusion as some have done in our days and say, well, we see uh, the the son submitting to the father and there's a there's there's a an aspect of it where it takes place in eternity past so the conclusion is then there is a will of the son that subordinates according to its essence to the will of the father and so then we divide god as he's revealed to us in scripture and we would we would pause for a moment here as i as i talk about this to let you know that we're on the deep end and it's okay, because every time we talk about God, we're in the deep end. So we must understand that it's okay to, to test those waters, to go, I, I don't understand. Well, I hope that as I explain it to you from Scripture, you may grasp something more of this doctrine, but that we would hold it out as something uh, mysterious, uh, something uh, that maybe we'll know more fully, yet I still don't believe we'll be fully comprehending God as He is eternal. But hopefully we'll know it more fully when we see Christ as He is because we will be like Him. Well, what we see here is that we have these eternal acts of God and the the understanding is that these eternal acts of, of the Godhead are the foundation for His external acts. That it was according to the divine will that things would be done, and then it would be according to the divine power that things would then come about. So the covenant of redemption is the foundation for everything that God will do in time in redeeming his bride for himself. It is a a specific doctrine that addresses salvation in the divine will of God according to his divine decree which ordains all that would come to pass. John Owen is another uh, old theologian. He defines the covenant of redemption this way. He says, The will of the Father appointing and designing the Son to be the head, husband, deliverer, and redeemer of his elect, his church, his people, whom he did foreknew with the will of the Son voluntarily, freely undertaking that work, and all that was required thereunto. So we see that, that we have uh, God the Father and God the Son coming in a, in a pact or a compact together to, to not only create a people, but to redeem 
a people to themselves for their own glory by their own power. And so we, we recognize that the covenant of redemption is one that is of the internal acts of God, and yet we recognize that it is of the foundation of the external acts of God, namely the covenant of grace. And once again, hopefully we'll get there this morning. Well, where, where is this covenant of redemption? Because if you went, if you have a concordance in your Bible there in the back and you went and you said, oh, well, let's look that up. You would find covenant maybe, but you would never find covenant of redemption. Covenant redemption, much like the Trinity and other theological uh, conclusions is a deduction of scripture as a whole. What does scripture teach us about this eternal agreement between the father and the son? And that had been given a name, Pactum Salutis, or Covenant of Redemption. Well, our church's confession, your church's confession, helps us understand a little bit more about how this plays into history. Because it says, our church's confession of faith asserts this doctrine as follows. The covenant of grace is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. That's in chapter 7 of our confession. And then in chapter 8, we read, It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be mediator between God and man. So our confession does well to uh, synthesize Scripture, to bring... uh, uh, doctrines together to formulate what is in, in scripture into doctrine, into something that we can understand systematically. But what does scripture say itself? If you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter one, we'll begin with where it speaks of the origin or the place of this covenant, of this agreement. And what we're going to see is we're going to look at where it began We're going to see the stipulations that the son took upon himself in this. And then we're going to see what reward was proffered to him at his obedience. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So in this uh, jam-packed, not even full sentence, as Paul likes to do to us, we see that there was a, a... predestining of people to be in Christ and that this is originating in heaven from every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is not an in-time compact. This is an out-of-time agreement between the Father and the Son. Again, we can turn to John chapter 6. And John, uh, of all the Gospels, is the one where we find this doctrine heavily present. 
Because what you'll see, and I'll point it out to you as we read from John 6, John 5, John 17, John 10, we're going to see that, that John records for us these words of Christ, of Christ trying to get something across to his disciples, across to his hearers, that they would know, as John says, that he is the Son of God, and through him alone is found eternal life. Why is that? Well, it's because that Christ came from heaven to do the will or work that was given to him by the Father. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but John chapter 6, beginning in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, this is Christ speaking, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing at all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We see here Christ in, in his uh, blessed divine oratory skills putting the two together the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace he says i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him speaking of the father who sent me and then he says this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing that he has given me but raise it up on the last day how will this come about well this will come about because everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life And I will raise him up on the last day. As sure as Christ was to complete his covenant of works, as he has, so is he to raise up those that put their faith in him, that have been justified in Christ, united with Christ. Well, we see here in John chapter 6 that that Christ comes down from heaven. This, This agreement between the Father and Son is a heavenly agreement. And by heavenly, we're saying outside of time and space. If you, if you turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 30 and verses 43, give us the similar uh, understanding, Christ speaking. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is Christ speaking of that compact, that he has come to do the will of the Father. This is not speaking of Christ saying that he is not of divine origin. This is of Christ revealing to them that what he is going to reveal to them in time and space about this covenant of grace, about this salvation, is something for them only to be received by faith and not by works. Why? Because it it predates time. And then in verse 43, I have come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. Christ is saying, I've come in my father's name. I've come under my father's charge. Speaking of being sent by the father, speaking of doing the will of the father, 
it may be to you as when that uh, beautiful doctrine of election or or that beautiful idea of predestination began to jump off the page of scripture as you as you came to trust as understand that that is biblical and you read and you're like man this is all over the place i never saw it before well i i think this is something that will happen if you read through john you're going to see christ constantly speaking about doing the will of the father being sent by the father obeying the father and so hopefully what will jump off the page is that is this wonderful truth of the covenant of redemption. Well, what is in a covenant? There are parties, and there in between those parties is there becomes stipulations. So uh, one, things for somebody to do or one must do in order to uh, comply with the covenant. Well, John chapter 17 helps us understand that there were stipulations to this covenant. John chapter 17, you may already know, is known as Christ's high priestly prayer, where he's praying to the Father. We're getting this uh, glimpse of the relationship between the incarnate Son and the eternal Father. And we see here in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, O Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The glory that the Son had as to equal with the Father, as truly God. And yet there was a work that was given to the Son by the Father in eternity past. It would go on and on into verse 12 if we had, if, if I wanted to take the time to read it. And, and it concludes in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We see the connection between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. That in the covenant of redemption, a particular people are being given to the Son under the stipulation that He would come and do the work that was given to Him. What is what is part of that work? John chapter 10. Go back to John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, speaking of His life, Christ speaking of His life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. This charge I have received from my father. This, this is the obedience of the son to the father is that he would come and lay down his life for the elect to redeem a people to himself. If we want to know uh, some of what we would say, maybe we would call this the full scope of the stipulations, we would turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. And you may, you may see what we're doing here with Scripture. We're going back and forth. We're going to epistles and we're going to narratives. We're seeing the words of Christ directly in, 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 as incarnate God. And now we're going to read the words of Christ as risen 
Lord through the pen of Paul. And so we would be encouraged to see what Paul has to say by the same authorship of the gospel of John. We see in Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse six, speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, willingly, voluntarily, right? Taking himself from the place of glory in heaven and, 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 and becoming incarnate God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Okay, this is, we're going to start talking about the stipulations here. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. And then in verse 9, there is, there is that eternal compact in verse 8. Verse 9, then the Spirit through the pen of Paul jumps to the eschaton, jumps to the consummation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to to the glory of God the Father. You see that Christ would take on a human nature, that in this human nature he would be a servant and yield obedience, and that he should also suffer and die in the place of the elect. We see here that the stipulations of the covenant of grace is the incarnation. Stipulations of the covenant of grace is the... uh, positive righteousness of Christ, the positive work of Christ in in his life. Every act of obedience that Christ performed on earth was an act of obedience to the Father according to the covenant of redemption. And as we get to it, and it's hard to hold my tongue, so I'm just not, as the winning of your salvation in the covenant of grace, so that There is no more boasting about our works. For where were you when Christ was obeying the Father? Where were you when the Son was submitting to the Father? You weren't even a twinkle in your parents' eye, as they say. You were in the mind, you were only in the mind of God as His elect people. So what it is for you to to lose in the covenant of grace is nothing because Christ has won it all. What is the reward that is put before the Son? The reward we see, and and for this we're going to go back to Psalm 2. And you may see this as you read also, as you spend time in, in the Old Testament, and as you turn to Psalm 2, you'll read the prophets in Isaiah, and he'll talk about this glorious time of this kingdom of no end, of no border, of, of an inclusion of Jews and Gentiles, and to rule over this kingdom is one, the anointed one. This is what, what Isaiah taps into, is thus saith the Lord there, 
what the other prophets tap into is they tap into what God is revealing to them about his divine order in eternity past and his divine agreement with the son that, that this would be provided and this is what would be won. But as we read Psalm 2, we would see in verse 6, we, we recognize what's going on in verses 1 through 5 is that we have the depravity of man, the rebellion of man, the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and against, namely, his anointed, his king, claiming that they could live autonomous apart from him. We see the Lord in his divine justice. In verse 4, he who sits in the heaven laughs because the Lord holds them in derision. On a side note, we see that playing out in our day and age right now, don't we? That, that our nation, and, and really we see this in most of Western culture as a whole, says, let us burst our bonds from God. There is no God, so we can live as we plead, as we please. And for a time, we may say, though, insane as according to the order of salvation, insane as in, the, in turning from their only hope, in life and death, namely Jesus Christ, there was more insanity for them to have that they would that the Lord would sit in the heavens and laugh and hold them in derision that we would even question biology. We would question empirical evidence about who we are according to the basis of gender, according to the basis of what is natural between a man and a woman. We see this, that the, whole, that the Lord is holding men in derision because they have sought to burst their bonds from God. But he goes on and, and we see the gospel here preached to us in Psalm 2. As for me, the Lord speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree set the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What is the reward of the covenant of redemption? That not only is a people going to be redeemed, but there would be a nation. And not just a nation that ends at some disputed border or some agreed upon treaty border but a nation that fills the entire earth the ends of the earth is your possession this is the reward of the covenant of redemption luke 22 verses 29 and just as my father has granted me a kingdom i grant you you need a little context here for luke 29 and uh, our good friend Richard Barcelos helps us out. He notes to, that we would notice the context of Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. He says, we have various things in this passage worth noting. We have the Lord's Supper in verses 19 through 20, and eschatological or future supper in verses 16 through 30. Christ says, I will not eat again of this until I eat it in the age to come or in the kingdom. And then he says, notice also that our Lord mentions the new covenant in my blood in Luke 22, 20 uh, in the second part. 
just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. He goes on to note that that uh, Greek word, the original word there in, in almost every other part of the New Testament is translated as covenant. And so what Christ is saying is just as my father has covenanted me a kingdom, I covenant with you. We see the surety of the covenant of grace there. We see the surety of our hope to drink the new wine and the new bread in the age to come at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to get there. I mean, maybe maybe by the end of my sermon, Lord willing, but we'll get there at least in, in note. Herman Wistius again says, And I engage by covenant unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath engaged by covenant unto me, in which words the Lord Jesus says that by virtue of some some covenant or disposition, he obtains a kingdom as we also obtain it by virtue of the same. We're starting to see the threads that tie between the covenant of grace and, and and the covenant of redemption. What is one in Christ in the covenant of redemption is offered to us in the covenant of grace. Romans 5.19, and and you guys can just take note of these. Romans 5.19 and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 49. And I'm sure if you spent any time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Pastor Antonio brought up the connection between Adam as the first Adam and Christ as the second Adam. How are they alike? Well, we know according to Scripture that there's a thing that that it's understood typology that you have Adam as the type and Christ as the anti-type. So Adam came to picture something about Christ. Well, part of what Adam came to picture was Christ's covenant of works, but certainly not Christ's failure. But to picture, and in reality, in history and time as types work, to fail as men fail, as the fallibility, the mutability of man there we see in Adam. And so just as uh, Christ came as the second Adam, we see that that Jesus was sent forth as another Adam to be obedient, the obedient covenant servant that the first Adam failed to be. So we have that the covenant of works in the garden is a uh, a precursor or, or is a precursor to the covenant of grace, but they're both in association to the covenant of redemption as we see the covenant of redemption being the second Adam's, Christ's, covenant of works. And Christ does not fail where Adam failed. Why do we need to know this covenant? Why is it important that we wade in these deep waters? Why is it important that we have these theological terms like covenant of redemption that are a conclusion of the, of what's taught in scripture? It's because it is, because the covenant of redemption is the foundation of the covenant of grace. It puts our salvation off of our works and upon the completed obedience of Christ in his covenant of works. Another theologian, Meredith Klein, says Christ's obedience under his covenant of works is the foundation of the gospel order. 
the intra-Trinitarian foundation of the covenant of grace, apart from which no man is saved, both explain that God's salvation plan was the result of the eternal counsels of the persons of the Trinity. Such counsels having the features of a covenant and including Christ's distinct, distinct personal concurrence that the foundation of the covenant of grace is the covenant of redemption. And then as a result of eternal counsels, as we see throughout scripture when it speaks of salvation, that it's working out according to the counsel of God or the purpose of God or the will of God. This is what it, scripture is describing. Owen, John Owen again describes it as the first cause or spring in relationship to the covenant of grace. He notes that the first spring or cause of this union and of all other causes of it lies in that eternal compact that was between the Father and the Son concerning the recovery and salvation of fallen mankind. We see that that in this covenant of redemption that God was pleased to the father was pleased to send the son. The son was pleased to, to be sent. And the spirit was to abide and to be given so that Christ would, would complete his work by the spirit. And this same spirit is afforded to us in the covenant of grace. We see that it also, because God was pleased to constitute both the first and second Adams as federal representatives, as covenant heads of a corporate humanity, right? In, all, in Adam, all die. So then in Christ, all shall be made alive. The obedient performance of the obligations of the covenant of works administered to each of them. And this is Meredith Klein, by the way. Uh, each of them would have the result that all whom they represented would receive with them the proposed grant of God's kingdom glory. That may be easier to read than it is to hear in the sense of what he's saying is that the result is that all whom they represented would receive the benefits or the curses of those covenants. What, would, what is the reward of the covenant of redemption? A people and a kingdom a place, an earth, a new heavens and a new earth. And it's not just a people, it's a holy people. It's a set-apart people. It's a perfected people where there is no tear. There is no ache in your bones. There is no death. This is what was won, won for us by Christ in His covenant of works, in His covenant of redemption offered to us in time as he enacted it in time through the covenant of grace. We are, because of the internal act of the Godhead in the covenant of redemption, which was externally acted as the covenant of grace, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, if you have come to Christ by faith alone, if you have put your trust in Him, Scripture says if you believe on the name of Jesus Christ, 
and that he was risen from the dead, you will be saved. This is a gift given to us as it was one. Faith was one for us by Christ and his obedience. Let us take joy in coming back to that truth every time you falter this week, every time you falter the rest of today. Let us come back to that truth that it was your salvation is not won by you. Your salvation was won by Christ. And that he has given you his spirit so that you would not no longer be held down by that sin in bondage, but that you would be given new life and free to live in obedience to him. I'm going to end with scripture in, I'm going to end with very late in scripture, Revelation 19. Verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her it was, was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, ble- write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the, are the true words of God. And then John, in his apocalypse, sharing with us his own sin nature, says, then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him, the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Let us pray.